They're coming to get you, Barbara. Hi, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. With those words, we're coming to get you Barbara. In his 1968 film Night of the Living Dead, filmmaker George A. Romero unleashed upon the world the modern zombie. These reanimated corpses with a hunger for human flesh have taken many forms over the years, from the slow, shambling ghouls in Romero's films and The Walking Dead TV show and comic books, to the fast, menacing zombies in films like 28 Days Later. But why has the zombie persisted? What is it about them that fascinates and frightens us? Well, that's easy. They're us. Dead, but us. And as such, the zombie has become a proxy for everything that concerns us, from our own mortality to mass consumerism to simply living mindlessly. That, and they're a lot of fun. This month, on a special Halloween episode of Call Number with American Libraries, we go face-to-face with the living dead. First, I look at the work of the filmmaker who started it all as I speak with Ben Rubin from the University of Pittsburgh Libraries about the George A. Romero Archival Collection. Next, American Libraries Managing Editor Tara Dankowski talks with Amy Dennis from Tom Green County Library System in San Angelo, Texas about their zombie doll program. And finally, I speak with Shauna McGuire, a.k.a. Mira Grant, the author of the incredible New Flesh trilogy of zombie fiction novels. But first, a word from a sponsor. It's October, and what does that mean? Well, it's Geico Ween, of course. Don't be spooked by high rates on car insurance. Geico is brewing up spellbinding savings that they're crafting just for you. See how much you could save. As a member of the American Library Association, go to geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local Geico agent for a fast, no-obligation quote. You can save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the ALA. Happy Geico-ween, everyone. The late filmmaker George A. Romero is credited with creating the modern-day zombie in his legendary movie Night of the Living Dead and its subsequent sequels. But his contributions and influence stretch far beyond horror. He was an independent cinema pioneer, a prolific screenwriter, and much more. Romero's vast personal archives of scripts, papers, correspondence, and more were gifted to the University of Pittsburgh after his death in 2017. I spoke with Ben Rubin, Horror Studies Collection Coordinator in the Archives and Special Collections at University of Pittsburgh Libraries, about the archive, Romero's work and influence, and more. Um, now, for some of our listeners out there who might not be super familiar with George Romero, George Romero, and his work, and uh, can you tell us a bit more about him and, and again, how, how did the University of Pittsburgh Libraries come to acquire this incredible archives? Um, sure. So uh, George Romero is a uh, filmmaker, and uh, he's best known for the film Night of the Living Dead um, and then some of its sequels, such as Dawn of the Dead. Um, and really his films uh, kind of redefined the horror genre and in particular gave us the modern conception of the zombie. 
uh, kind of taking it away from the uh, previous uh, usual depictions of a um, kind of mesmerized uh, you know, person under the control of somebody else that really came from sort of voodoo folk folklore out of uh, the Caribbean and Africa um, to this idea of the shambling, you know, reanimated corpses with a, uh, a, a lust for the flesh. Um, and so he, he really redefined horror in that way um, and, and really redefined what it meant to be an independent filmmaker as well. Um, and his legacy is, is well uh, known. The um, Library of Congress recognized it and put Night of the Living Dead in the National Film Registry uh, and has a you know huge cult following among uh, horror fans. Um, and so it came to Pitt uh, after he passed in 2017. His widow really wanted to ensure his legacy would live on and recognize this, uh, this need to place his archives somewhere. Um, and so she came to Pittsburgh and we kind of did our normal donor talks and, you know, talked to her about uh, what our process is for stewarding materials. Uh, we really talked about our capacities to preserve and maintain, but also to use our materials in a way that ensures that students and people get access to them and get to learn and research from them. Uh, and so after about a year's worth of conversations, she decided that this was the place for it. Um, and so we talked with uh, her, his widow, Suze, as well as his daughter, Tina, and then his uh, business partner, Peter Grunwald. And so all of them contributed uh, parts to this collection. Now, you've kind of touched a bit on this next question already, but why is it important to to preserve Romero's archives? But uh, I guess the bigger question would be, is like, especially in Pittsburgh, why is it important that your University of Pittsburgh has this collection? Sure. So, I mean, I think uh, preserving the cultural history is important and certainly the charge that we have in the archive. Um, but for him in particular and in Pittsburgh, it makes sense because he really is sort of considered one of Pittsburgh's own. Mm -hmm. um, he was originally from New York City, but he came to Pittsburgh in the late 50s to attend college, uh, not at Pitt, but um, actually at the university just down the street from us. Uh, it's now called Carnegie Mellon. Um, but he loved it here and really started the film industry in Pittsburgh. He got it started first in industrials and commercials and then eventually started making film and maintained his presence here. Uh, the city is the text for a lot of his films, Night of Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, uh, Land of the Dead. All of these are really set here in Pittsburgh. Um, you can see the background of the city in almost every film. And even when he left and went to Toronto, he still was studying his films here in Pittsburgh. Um, so it, it really made sense for him and his work to be here because, it, it, you know, we are the text for his work. He loved the city. The city really loves him. There is a very, very strong horror fandom here that's really revolved around Romero and, you know, taking pilgrimages to the spots where he filmed and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, as we, I mentioned to you in our, our talk before we started this interview, uh, he, Romero is my favorite filmmaker. And the one time I did visit Pittsburgh, it was just kind of like, oh, yes, <laughs> it all makes sense. You know, seeing, <laughs> right. seeing where land was, was shot and, you know, you know, at dawn, as you mentioned. But you are you're the horror studies collection coordinator at the library. Are you mm -hmm. are you a, a fan of Romero's work? I, I am. I am. Uh, you know, I love his stuff. It uh, was really cool when I moved here to Pittsburgh to also be the person who took the pilgrimages and, mm -hmm. you know, look to see where he had filmed, but also to rewatch the films, you know, living in Pittsburgh and kind of getting a different sense of uh, place that I didn't have from before. 
Um, and I'm just, I'm a huge horror fan all around. So having that title is, uh, extraordinarily edifying. It's very surreal. Yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about the, the archive itself. What type of uh, materials are in the archives? And I guess a good, good place to start would be how many, how many items are actually in this archive? Because it's, it's, it's pretty vast. It is. So, uh, perhaps maybe rather than trying to identify the number of items, I can go by it by the number of boxes. <laughs> um, so the, the Romero archive itself is uh, about 120 boxes of material, um, mostly all paper. Um, so it's a lot of scripts, uh, drafts, manuscript type material, um, production notes, um, budgets, uh, all that kind of stuff that goes into the sort of how he made the film. A lot of press clippings and contemporaneous uh, coverage to kind of situate and understand the history. Um, there's a little bit of props and some realia, but not a whole lot. It's mostly paper. Um, and then we also have about 3,500 uh, digitally born objects. Uh, we're still working on the, kind of our way through processing those, but the uh, paper materials are processed. So it's it's a fairly large archive. Um, you know, 100 boxes of paper is uh, maybe hard to think of in the abstract, but it's it's a lot. Um, and so and that really was just the basis for this bigger idea of having a horror studies collection is that Romero is really our foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, what type of condition were these materials? And are you, are, are you doing any, do you have to do any restoration or repair work or is it just you're just collecting them? Um, we had to do a little bit. So for the most part, this one was actually in pretty good shape. Um, it, it didn't have any of the, the really, uh, you know, problematic red flags that you see with some collections that come in with like issues like mold or anything like that. Um, some of it was, you know, the paper's really old, uh, not in the best of shape. So maybe we'll encapsulate some things or we'll make copies and have the consultation, you know, you, people working with it use the consultation copies rather than the originals just to maintain the integrity of the paper. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had to do a lot of reformatting for legacy media. There was a lot of film and uh, magnetic tape like VHS and beta that we did transfer um, just to make sure that we have digital copies that you can watch without further damaging the originals. Um, but for the most part, this was actually a collection in really, really good shape. Oh, great. Um, now, the Romero's archives, it's part of a, a larger, as you mentioned, horror and sci-fi collection at the library. And you have some mm -hmm. really interesting, like, books in your rare book collection. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about the other offerings that the library has and specifically Romero's place within that library? Um, sure. So when we were talking to the family uh, about whether Pitt was the best repository, I mean, one of the things we were able to do is connect it to some holdings we already had. And so we had a actually fairly significant um, science fiction pulp collection. Uh, so we had a lot of the big titles like Galaxy and If and Analog and Astounding Stories and things like that. Um, and a fair amount of good, you know, sort of rare book, first edition of really significant um, science fiction uh, and horror titles. But once the archive was going to definitely be deposited at Pitt, we kind of rethought what does this mean for us? And it was decided that we could turn this into a collecting area and be the place for horror studies and really decide that this is now our collection development policy. Um, and we couldn't really find any other places doing this, so it really gave us a, uh, a new, you know, ground to break. Um, and so since then, we've been, you know, I go out and, of course, go through the rare book catalogs, try to get more material, uh, buy stuff with like kind of one-off scripts, but also just getting more archives added. And so we've mostly focused on uh, literary archives. Um, partially that's where I've been able to get access to. Partially I'm also 
more of a fan of uh, horror lit and more knowledgeable about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've also acquired the papers of Kathy Koja, who's one of my favorite authors, so I'm very excited. Um, Linda D. Addison, uh, Daniel Krauss, mm-hmm. and uh, Gwendolyn Keist. And then we've also uh, are now the repository for the archives of the Horror Writers Association. Great. Um, and so these are all sort of building up this idea that we have this really strong collection. Um, we've only been doing this for about two and a half years. And of course, a good almost two years of this now has been taken up by the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're still kind of nascent, but I think we've been doing a really great job. Um, some other really cool things we've gotten recently was we got uh, a first American edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, issued in two parts in 1833. So it's really exciting. Um, that came through a donation. Um, and we've gotten several really amazing scripts that we've been able to find on the rare book market, such as a uh, first draft of uh, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. Now, um, the Romero Archive, archive itself, um, who um, is particularly using this archive? And, and I guess to that question would be also, is it open to the public? Um, sure. So all of the archives of the University of Pittsburgh uh, library system are open to the public. Okay. Um, and we welcome researchers in from all over. Um, the Romero Archive itself hasn't seen a ton of use yet, and I think that was just sort of by virtue of the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, we got it in uh, spring of uh, 2019, and you know, for listeners that have worked in archives, you know that there's a big process of going through and uh, you know, inventorying and processing and cataloging and sort of arranging the archive. Um, and so I was under that process when the pandemic hit, and at that point, um, our library closed its doors to the outside. Um, and even most of our students were not on campus. So just now, as of the new semester, we really we have all of our students back. We've reopened to the public, um, although it does require an appointment. Um, and so now I think we're going to start to see people coming in. So we've had you know a couple of researchers here and there, some fans, some academics. We're starting to see students come in, but I, I think it's still a little early to be able to kind of understand what the uh, scope of the usage will be. Um, but I'm really excited now that you know we're kind of getting out of this pandemic. We're kind of back to being able to invite people in to, to do research to see uh, what you know what kinds of research uh, opportunities we have, who our patron base really ends up being. And um, what's um, is there anything in particular in the archive that sticks out to you, or, or do you have a favorite piece? <laughs> um, you know that's really hard. Yeah. Uh, th- there's a couple of things that I think really really stood out to me is. Um, you know, there is a heavily, heavily annotated uh, shooting script of Night of the Living Dead that is just incredible. It's where he's changing dialogue right on the page, handwriting new new scenes in and inserting them in, and it, it's just this absolutely incredible document. Um, another thing that I just, I really loved, and, you know, the discovery of this was one of my favorites, was uh, opening an old envelope and looking through some of the uh, materials in there and then all of a sudden this letter falling out and it's from 1974 and where George first starts to think about and outline Dawn of the Dead. And it's the first thing that I ever saw about it. Uh, We wouldn't see another script or treatment for another two years. Um, And then there's just the majority of the scripts there are unproduced films. Mm -hmm. There's over 120 unproduced scripts. And so Seeing these and probably being the first person in many years in some cases has been incredible, and it really gives a new like light and window into who he was as a creator. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was looking through um, you know, your website where any of our listeners want to see what's actually in the archive, you can go to, to the, the University of Pittsburgh Library's website and see um, a listing. It's just it's staggering, like you know, his you know, treatment for it. You know, a lot of things that I think a lot of people right. weren't aware that he was involved in. I think it's just fascinating looking to his work. Um, right. Now, I guess I guess to that, like what um, what is Romero's ultimately? What is his lasting legacy on cinema and pop culture? Uh, I mean, I think of course the sort of redefining what we understand as the zombie, and you know, we still see that 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 conception of how they're portrayed persists today. Um, I think that sort of his refocus of what the horror, rather than it being the other but being us, uh, is persisted throughout all of this um you know horror has been shaped in that way now for the past 50 60 years and i think a lot of that is attributable to him um and i think his influence just on independent filmmaking and the, the idea that you can be that successful as an independent horror filmmaker you know he, he really showed that you can do that um and then sort of behind the scenes i think one of the things that's really lasting for him is he was intensely collaborative. And so Mm -hmm. you see throughout this archive, you know, all these other people that he worked with that have gone on to have careers of their own that, you know, can kind of tie it back to working in Pittsburgh with George. How do you banish high rates on car insurance? You switch to Geico during Geico Ween. October is their favorite time of year, and the folks over at GEICO have been working even harder to cast out high rates and craft just the right policy for you and your family. Switching to GEICO isn't so scary, especially when they could brew up spellbinding savings just for you. As a member of the American Library Association, go to geico.com D-I-S-C A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local GEICO agent for a fast, no-obligation quote. You can save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the American Library Association. Happy Geico Ween, everyone. Zombies. They can be incredibly scary, but one library has found an ingenious way to make them fun for area youth. For the past three years at Tom Green County Library System in San Angelo, Texas, kids and teens have been making their own zombie dolls. American Library's managing editor Tara Dankowski spoke with Amy Dennis, the library's PR and programming librarian, about the program, how it helps the library's sustainability efforts, and more. We ran across a notice for your zombie doll program in the San Angelo Standard Times, and we laughed, and we knew we wanted to talk to Tom Green County Library for this episode. So can you tell us, how did this program get started, and what does it entail? So our children's librarian, um, Teresa, is one of the sweetest, most gentle people you will ever meet. And and this zombie Barbie program is the last thing you would expect from her. But it actually came from her um, about three years ago. So this is, well, actually four years ago. This is our third year doing the program. And really what it is is uh, enhanced story time. So we read a couple of short stories that are zombie-focused, or we might give just a teaser from a longer, like a chapter book um, or a graphic novel, and just kind of get them interested in what it means to be a zombie. Um, And then we bring out the dolls, we have all of the equipment ready, and the dolls get wrecked. They are a hot mess. 
Um, can you describe what some of these hot mess dolls look like after a group of teens and tweens have zombified them? Is it and is it just Barbie dolls or are there other toys in the mix? Do people donate other things for for you know um, the event? The dolls that we use are completely varied. So we have Barbies, we have Borat dolls, Monster High dolls. We'll take any kind of action figure you have. Um, I haven't seen a baby doll during these events yet, but I, I fully anticipate that one of these years we'll see a baby doll or a baby zombie as well. Uh, these zombies are are really wrecked. They so when you think about what we do with our Barbies as soon as we get them or action figures or anything. Um, after we've had them for a while, they're chewed up. Their hair is usually the first thing to go, right? You get those safety scissors and you just lop the hair off. Um, and that's kind of almost how we get them because they are donated. So these dolls are already, um, probably half of them are in pretty bad shape, which just is great for our project. Um, it just gives us a good jumping off place. Uh, for the imagination to kind of take over and really work with the the faults that the dolls already have. But um, you'll see dolls with uh, missing features or um, wounds, that kind of thing, bite marks. Um, we also have, we put out clothes for the dolls so they can dress them however they want. And we're really fortunate to have um, a makerspace, a huge makerspace here in-house. Uh, so we can also use some of the materials that we find there, like our jewelry-making equipment um, and some of our sewing scraps as well. The kids must love this. It is awesome to see all the imagination come out and just be played out on these dolls. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, why do you think it's one of your more popular programs? What sort of feedback have you received from your participants? Our feedback has been wildly popular. It's been very, very um, positive, uh, with a few exceptions. Every year we usually get one or two patrons that have um, concerns about the program. Um, about uh, We have one in particular who's a former doll collector. Who's, she writes us every year about the program. She's not a big fan of using the dolls and is curious about what it teaches um, the patrons, the younger patrons that we have in-house. Um, other than that, that is really, um, it is one of our most popular programs. And I think in part um, because it does tie in so heavily with that Halloween theme, right? Zombies are, are pretty transgressive. And taking these uh, beautiful, these little icons of beauty and, and fashion and turning them into zombies is doubly transgressive, which is what Halloween's about, right? It's when you get these Barbies and you come in and you make them ugly. They're supposed to be so beautiful. And you make them um, just these vicious killers. <laughs> it, uh, it's kind of a naughty-naughty in, in regular daily life. So it's, it's fun to be able to do something that you're not really supposed to do, but it's in a very safe environment, um, and it's in a, a very familiar environment for a lot of our, our kids. Definitely. Um, you mentioned that it's kind of an enhanced story time. Uh, does the Zombie Doll program serve as an entry point to introduce tweens and teens to other library holdings and services, whether it's horror-themed content or something else entirely? 
that's really our intent. Like the majority of our programming is not just um, this kind of grody craft night. Uh, we'll also set up displays. So we'll have um, age age appropriate, I guess you could say, um, teen and tween zombie DVDs, books, audio books. Um, we'll have a lot of stuff out. Like we'll have... Uh, movies like Fido or books like Zombie Chasers, Dead Meat, Plants vs. Zombies. So it is kind of a twofold um, purpose or intent. Is Our intent is twofold with this program to get them here, A, but also uh, once they're here to show them that it's just not books here. We have so many great things, and it's just not books that you would hate to read. We have some excellent books here as well as, of course, our um, – movies and audio and graphic novels and, and um, other supplementary material. Yeah. Um, the other thing, too, is your, pro- your program is a prime example of how upcycling can be incorporated into craft projects. Um, is sustainability something that's important to your library? Very much so. Um, the, pa- the pandemic kind of... Um, forced us to reconsider and fine-tune some of our practices and policies, like libraries across the world, around the globe, for that matter. Um, So um, our recycling and our sustainability policy was definitely something that we had to revisit. So we put into effect a much more um, robust recycling program. Um, We started using paper versus plastic with all of our take-and-makes, and then we started crowdsourcing um, for a lot of our different projects. In fact, my office right now is full of uh, packages of ramen and uh, empty yogurt jars and all kinds of fun fun programming stuff that was crowdsourced from our community. In fact, that's how um, the San Angelo Standard Times found out about us, was that initial mid-August call for, um, for, for uh, materials. That's so great. Um, are there any other spooky programs that your library is doing for Halloween this year? There are. We have so many cool programs going on for Halloween, and they're all slightly spooky or not so spooky. They're, um, mo- they mostly are kid-focused um, this year, so we have two different Halloween parties going on. We're a three-location system, so we have a central library and two branches. Our two branches will be doing those Halloween parties, and they'll have fun stuff, like they'll have dirt cupcakes and little ghost decorations that the kids will make, as well as a story time. We've got another program where we're doing special effects horror makeup, so that'll be awesome. We'll teach you how to how to hook up and enhance your own um, your own Halloween costume this year. So we do have some pretty good stuff, as well as an interactive Hocus Pocus movie, which will be a blast. That sounds great. Are, I have to ask, are you planning on wearing a Halloween costume this year? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, every year. This year I'll be going as Jessica Lebowski, so that should be um, interesting. I'm not very – I'll be the not-so-big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> How do you banish high rates on car insurance? You switch to GEICO during GEICO Ween. As a member of the American Library Association, go to geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A 
Call 1-800-368-2734 or contact your local GEICO agent for a fast, no-obligation quote. You could save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the American Library Association. And don't forget, October is GEICO's favorite time of the year, and GEICO has been working even harder to cast out high rates on car insurance and craft just the right coverage for you and your family. But here's the thing you may not know about GEICO. They could also help you uncover more ways to save on the other things parked in your driveway, like your beloved motorcycle, boat, or even your home away from home, your RV. GEICO could even help you save on homeowners and renters insurance. So visit geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A today, and you'll see firsthand that switching your insurance coverage doesn't have to be scary. The only thing that will haunt your nightmares is seeing just how much you could have saved if you had switched sooner. GEICO. Happy GEICO-ween, everyone. The News Flush trilogy of books, Feed, Deadline, and Blackout, are unique in the zombie horror genre, mixing political intrigue, virology, and conspiracy theory as it follows a group of young blogger journalists who stumble upon a vast national conspiracy plot while covering a political campaign decades after a zombie outbreak has upended the world. It's smart, scary, and especially timely reading now as we all adjust to life in a pandemic. I spoke with Shauna McGuire, who wrote the trilogy under the pen name Mira Grant, about zombies, her thoughts on the books 10 years after their release, her research process, and more. Now, you, um, first thing first, you write as both under your name, Sean McGuire, and also as Mira Grant, which um, is the name that the, the news, Newsflash books are published under. Um, why did you decide to release works under two different names? Marketing, sexism, and timing. I mean, the entire invention of Touchstone Pictures in the 1980s was because Disney never wanted to hear anyone utter the sentence, Walt Disney presents Reservoir Dogs. People do very strongly associate names, whether they be names of people or names of companies, with specific kinds of story, with specific shapes of story. And I had seen several times over my lifetime uh, authors put out fantastic books, really exciting and interesting and innovative books that would then completely tank because they were being released by someone who was best known for working in a different genre. Uh, I I didn't want that, you know, speaking from a purely mercenary standpoint, I wanted to actually be able to publish my books, get paid and publish more books. Um, You also run into a lot of issues with parents, um, especially when they're buying books for kids who read in genres that they don't, going, oh, well, this book is by so-and-so, that means it's going to be fine. And I already knew that my Mira Grant books were going to be a little bit less family-friendly than the Seanan McGuire books. Uh, Seanan writes for a very PG audience, and Mira writes a little bit more R-rated. Uh, and then the sexism angle is, as Seanan, I am best known for writing urban fantasy. Urban fantasy is basically the only female-dominated modern subgenre most of the successful urban fantasy authors have been women. Uh, and this has led to the impression that it is a genre only for women and that it's a genre completely filled with vampire porn. So I have met quite a few guys, uh, quite a few men, who do not read urban fantasy unless it's by male authors. Now, obviously, Mira is not an urban fantasy author, but I was concerned, and so was my publisher, that if we released the Newsflesh books under the Sean and McGuire name, 
we would have trouble attracting a male audience, which is the majority of the audience for any zombie subgenre entry. So it was a combination of marketing and sexism. Hmm. Now, let's talk about the, the Newsflash trilogy. What um, what led you to write these these three books? Have you always been a fan of, of zombie fiction? I love zombie fiction. I love zombies, but I find that the actual initial outbreak is kind of overdone. At this point, you know, everybody wants to show the world falling down. They don't want to show you the world standing up again. Uh, so I really wanted to put something into that space that was not necessarily hopeful, but a little bit more enduring. Um, and, you know, I just, I really love zombies. <laughs> um, I'm with you on that one. Now, how did you, you come up with the book's premise? Because it's, it's, it's a fascinating series of three books because you have zombies, you have uh, political intrigue on the political campaign angle, you have virology and conspiracy theories, and then your, your protagonists are bloggers. How did you come up with this, with, with uh, the book's premise? So the entire thing was built outward from the virology. That was the part that really interested me, was how would you build a zombie apocalypse that we could survive, that would not be a complete slate wiper and humans would bounce back, but would then have to live with the aftermath of. So I spent about three years just working endlessly on this virus. I was very annoying during that time period. You could not have dinner with me without hearing about new ways that I had attempted to raise the dead that week. Uh, and finally, my friend Michael, who hosted dinner at his place every Wednesday night, turned around and said that if I didn't have at least 100 pages by that time next week, I couldn't have dinner. I really liked having dinner at Michael's house. So I said, well, I don't have a plot. All I have is this virus. It's a great virus, but it's not a story. And he said, just write a damn presidential campaign and leave me alone. Hmm. So uh, I decided to write a damn presidential campaign and leave him alone. Uh, now, the thing about any kind of traditionally published work is that you look at the date the book came out, and you have to understand that the book was finished two years before that. Mm -hmm. So Newsflash, was re uh, the first book, Feed, was released in 2010, which means I turned it in in 2008. If you actually look at the Internet as it was in 2008, we didn't have Facebook, really. We didn't have microblogging. Blogging was what people did. Everybody had a blog, and it was your, your living diary. And we were just starting to see the shape of new media and what it would be. And at that point in time, if you had asked me, is Facebook going to overtake LiveJournal? You know, is Facebook going to be what the Internet looks like in 10 years? I would have laughed at you. Uh, so the blogging really is an artifact of the time when the story was conceived. I kind of wish that version of the Internet had won. I think that it was a healthier, less misleading Internet. You had a lot of people that lied on their blogs, but because it was harder to divorce the sentence from the subject, because you had to take into account who had written it, it was a little more difficult to have the mass falsehoods. Um, and one thing I was really that really struck me about these three books is that unlike many zombie films and zombie fiction, where the the cause of the um, the outbreak is unknown, like George Romero's films, for example, your books, like as you mentioned, you have this virus the Keyless Amberley virus. Now, what you, you touched on it just briefly a little bit, but I want to know a bit more about your research process because it's really, it's really deep, the, 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 the explanations and, and the virology 
in this book. Did you did you contact the CDC for guidance at all? I did. I actually worked with the CDC fairly extensively um, and the World Health Organization. Lots and lots of phone calls, lots and lots of endless conversations that make it difficult to sleep at night. Um, you know that sort of thing. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I uh, the thing that knocked me out of any kind of zombie setting that wants to use a virus as the explanation for why the dead are getting up and walking around. And the fastest way to lose me is to have bad virology. A lot of people will hold up uh, Max Brooks's World War Z as a genuine classic of our subgenre, and it is a beautifully composed war story. But basically, any time he tries to talk about his zombie virus, I start seeing spots. I'm so angry because it's so incoherent. It doesn't work. So I knew what I wanted. I knew the basic shape of the virus I wanted, and I just started making phone calls. Oh, wow. Now, this is a minor spoiler alert for any of our listeners, so you can plug your ears if you don't hear this. But um, what did the CDC, or have you heard anything from anybody at the CDC about their portrayal in the books? So at the time, again, this was a different time. For a very, very long time, the CDC was kind of the government organization that if you thought of them at all, you didn't think that they might be involved in anything untoward. There was very little politicization of the CDC up until recently, and that was kind of an an informal, uncrossable line. You did not want to villainize the CDC because if you did, you might get an uncontrollable global pandemic. Mm -hmm. Weird thinking there. So when I said, I want to write this and I want to make you the bad guys, they thought this was fantastic Hmm. because no one would ever do that. Oh, wow. That's Uh, amazing. Yeah, times have changed. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned uh, just a bit ago the, how, how the social media and the, the media landscape has changed since your books were first released. And one thing I, mm-hmm. I, I think is really interesting about you, the characters in your book, the reporters, is that they have cameras and microphones all over their bodies and, and all over. They're, they're, they, they have maximum coverage of everything they see and hear. Um, but in the, you know, the 10, 11 years since a feed was first released, social media and smartphones have allowed really for real-time news access and access of everything. Um, if you were to rewrite the books today, how would you change them to account for these new technologies or, or would you at all? I would not write the books today. I, I couldn't, you know, I'm trying to be as, as light as I can while talking about a thing that top that touches on the world that we're in. But the thing that those books have that I no longer really have is optimism that, when we were put into a position where relatively simple choices could help keep people from dying and where it was something as simple as wear a mask or get a vaccine, we would do that for the sake of the people around us, that we would make the public health choices. And I really and truly believed that. I could not see any way that people would ever make certain things political or would ever want to go, oh, a person on the internet told me that if I get a vaccine, I'll have a microchip in my body and Bill Gates will be able to track me. And they wouldn't just be told, okay, it's it's time for a nappy nap because there is something wrongy wrong, uh, but would instead be listened to and even applauded. You know, one of my sisters is a high school librarian and she has uh, parents 
who are telling their children to go to school, take off their masks, and cough on the staff members hmm. because they're trying to uh, protest a mask mandate through their kids. That is so far outside the realm of anything that makes any sense to me that once you put me into a world where that's considered rational, that's considered normal, I, I just can't. I can't hit that level of optimistic no, no, people will make good choices. It's not possible anymore. I'm sorry. Oh, that's completely understandable. Yeah, there's one thing that struck me. I, re I reread the three books uh, during the pandemic, and I was struck by the parallels between what was going on in the book and what we were experiencing in the quarantines, people being hyper aware of their health status, the nature of, sp of spreadable disease. Um, if people were to reread the books or re read the books for the first time now, what do you think they could learn about? our current situation to help them understand it better? You know, everything, not everything about Kellis Amberley is true, thankfully, because if it were, mm -hmm. we would have zombies up and walking around and that would be bad. But everything that I say about quarantine, about ways to protect yourself from disease, about the importance of observing simple protocols is drawn from conversations I had with medical professionals. I am not a doctor, but I occasionally play one on TV. Uh, but I spent a lot of time developing this virus and trying to make it as true to life as possible. Um, the entire first part of our current global situation was marked with people asking me what's going on and me trying very hard to explain because I had done so much work in the coronavirus space. Um, I think that there is something to be said there for the idea of adaptation, that if you're reading them now for the first time, you are looking at a world where this kind of thing has become normal. A disease becoming endemic does not mean it goes away. A disease becoming something that is part of the landscape doesn't mean it's been cured. And some things never get cured. Some things are just changes to the status quo that we have to figure out how to live with. Mm -hmm. Now these three books they were they're published um you know we had C two thousand ten, Deadline two thousand eleven, Blackout two thousand twelve, and then they were there was a single volume released in two thousand nineteen, then you had also a novella. Um do you have well, any a, plans? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. There's a collection of novellas. It's called Rise, and there yeah. is actually a fourth mainline book. It's called Feedback. Oh, that's right, yes. Um now do you have any plans to revisit that world or, or perhaps these characters in the future? Not currently. So much of traditional publishing is down to our publishers. So if Orbit, which is the publisher that released that series, called me tomorrow and said, hey, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. People want to read about zombies. We think that you should do another book. I would do it in a heartbeat. Uh, but no other publisher is going to pick up something in that setting because of the fact that any increase to sales would benefit Orbit. So unless Orbit wants it, no. Hmm. And uh, finally, I have one question. Um, what is your zombie outbreak contingency plan? So I live in a semi-rural area um, on purpose. So a lot of people around here have guns, uh, which is good fun for them. Um, I am not a gun owner because my eyesight is not quite great enough. My general zombie plan is to stay in my house, lock the doors, and listen until the shooting stops, and then wait a little bit longer while checking in with the CDC as regularly and reliably as I possibly can because the nature of the zombie outbreak itself does change what plan is best. 
if you're looking at something like 28 Days Later or even the James Gunn uh, Dawn of the Dead, you've got fast zombies. They are not going to decay quickly. You've got a problem. And at that point, my zombie outbreak plan is probably get eaten. Uh, but if you're looking at something more like Night of the Living Dead, where they are slow, shambling, and rising from everywhere, you can actually get a, get around that relatively easily if you just have a way of getting to water. So uh, my plan is to at least initially wait and see what I'm dealing with and then adjust accordingly. That wraps another episode of Call Number with American Libraries. Many thanks to Ben Rubin, Amy Dennis, and Shauna McGuire for speaking with us today about zombies. Join us next month as we talk libraries and food with Padma Lakshmi and many more. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. 